Welcome to Robot Friends, the podcast that actively harms its audience. Episode 43, Eigenrobot vs. History, Part 3. Hey all, I am here with History Courses once again for our third episode about history. Um, how you doing? Very good, very good. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice to be back. Yeah, always a pleasure. And yeah, I mean, congratulations about uh, for your new place. We're we're both in we're both in houses now, so um, <laughs> it feels a slightly different vibe. It feels like we've we've moved. I don't know. More, it feels it's more like, settled. It's yeah. like you're not just doing it out of a basement. Yeah, yeah, that was bad back at the old place. Um, really, not a pleasant place to work or live. So I'm I'm up on the second floor now. Things are still coming together, um, but I feel like. Uh, Feel like I'm, I don't know, more maybe more in a stable life now. Um, yeah, I so, think uh, I think your surroundings have a lot to do with uh, with how stable you feel. You know, some like I'm naturally a very messy person. My things fly all over my papers, my books, but I work really hard to just uh, you know keep it under control because you know when you sit down and work in a clean room versus when you sit down and work work in a flying room. You just have a whole different frame of mind. Everything about a setting, you know, color, lighting, it all matters to your frame of mind and how you could focus and how you could study. That's just my feeling. So yeah, like yeah. a house just makes it <laughs> easier to study in. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, there's, you know, famous famous post-rationalist. Um, I don't know if he was actually a post-rationalist, but he's he's read by many of the post-rationalists. Christopher Alexander talks a lot about that, how to set up an environment that's conducive to, to living effectively or living pleasantly, living in a way that you want to live. Um, I mean, it, it feels underappreciated, or at least it's very easy to ignore the effect that your environment has on your cognition, your experience of the world. But I think it's real and pervasive almost, um, which actually leads me to a question that I wasn't planning to ask, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, there's there's this idea of zeitgeist or, you know, sort of a spirit of the times, right? Like an ambient, I don't know. I, I guess I can let you define zeitgeist. You might be more familiar with this in the history of ideas. But I'm curious whether you think it's real. And to the extent that it is, how how a historian might go about trying to identify it or characterize it and then also like communicate it to a way that contemporaries would actually understand or appreciate in a meaningful way. I mean, is that even possible? Wow. Yeah. So no, obviously big, big sprawling question. And there are parts that I, I feel like I have a better answer to than other parts. Um, <clears throat> I'm not, first of all, I'm not familiar with zeitgeist in, in the history of ideas. Like you say, like I can't tell you who coined the term and in what sense that person meant it. I only have my own impression and usage of the word, uh, which I guess I'll elaborate on as I go on. But I can't, like, whatever I'm saying, anybody who's familiar with the history of the term or the idea, I'm not coming from that point. I'm not familiar with that. So I'm just working off of my definition of it. And you know, it's interesting because normally I, I've always thought of zeitgeist as, as a tone less like more i guess audio 
than visual. In other words, more about words and about concepts. I guess mimetic would be better yeah. than, than visual. More about ideas. Um, but now that you're mentioning the visual aspect, that does exist too. I mean, just, and I'm, my thoughts here are scattered too, but you take, say, for example, classical architecture, right? So let's say in the Renaissance, you had these people, they, they consciously set out to revive classical architecture and their entire focus was on proportionality and ratios and the like. Now that had that was very closely correlated to the ideas that they were espousing, which was Platonism, right? The, the, the area of yeah. scholasticism was Aristotelian and the humanism of the Renaissance was Platonic. That was like the major line of demarcation between the Renaissance and what came before it. So their thinking also was strongly influenced by the, this sort of sense of mathematical perfection uh, Platonism, Pythagoreanism, whatever you're going to call it. Um, so the question then becomes, right, this, this leads us to ask whether the visuals in any way impacted the mode of thinking or more likely did the mode of thinking impact the visuals? Now, so we have mm-hmm. a question of cause and effect here. Yeah, and more, I, I, I should yeah. be clear. I, I, I probably used a visual metaphor um, but but the, and I think that that's something that's pretty plausible. Although I think I agree with where you're about to go with this, um, but I'm not particularly wedded to that. You know, it was more just a metaphor from my perspective than you know uh, something something that was literal. I mean, when I think about zeitgeist, I I'm almost thinking about the way that people experience the world or relate to it, and maybe flavor. If I were to pick a sense, is, is a better choice or something. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Um... Like I said, that was the initial way I'd define the term zeitgeist in terms of the filters that people experience the world through, the way they see the Mm. world, the way they um, comprehend it or parse it. Uh, It definitely exists. I think it's, um, it would, I think the burden of proof would fall on somebody who's trying to say that it doesn't exist um, because it's something it's something that that you see all around for example if you read something that was written in the 1800s it has a very different cadence and texture from something which is written now you look at the way people dressed in the 1800s very different from the way they dress now and it's not just incidental it is reflective of a different attitude you know the way a victorian might view a certain conversation is very different or a certain concept is very different from how we might um, because as they say the past is a different country um, it's interesting I I, uh, I put a thread up once really it's more like an open prompt I got a lot of interesting answers out of but I was something I was thinking about which is you know when we read the uh, Iliad most moderns most of us, tend to identify more with Hector than with Achilles. He seems the more noble and good guy there, like the type of guy who, if you're watching a movie, and by the way, the movies of Troy have depicted the same thing as well. Hector's the good guy. Hector's a good guy here, you know? 
He's yeah. got, you know, and and Homer having Hector playing with his baby, right? Playing with Astinax before he goes out to fight. It's very clearly um, telling us something about his humanity, right? Hector's very noble figure there, but who is the hero there? Is it Hector or Achilles? Um, to us, we identify much more with Hector. Would that have been the way a Homeric uh, audience would have understood it or not? And I can hear both ways. There are valid points we made both ways, but the, the point I'm trying to bring out here is that, yes, different cultures, different times, different places, they filter characters through different uh, lenses. Uh, for example, no, no, another funny example. When uh, the Goths, when they translated the um, the Bible into Germanic, I think it was Gothic. Um, I think it was Wolfila who did it, but I don't remember exactly. I think it was Wolfila of the Goths. And this is, I'm working off of, of recollection here, so I may be wrong on some of the details. But basically, when they translated the New Testament, instead of having um you know jesus peacefully go with the soldiers there's this whole brawl where the disciples are fighting back with their weapons because they they recognized you know we'll feel a recognize that different cultures are going to absorb things differently and so obviously he was an evangelist he was trying to win people over to christianity and so he took the license of playing around with the story a bit to make it appeal more to the Germanic culture, you know, than the more Hellenized Roman culture. Uh, so, so that's another example, which which is actually which I found pretty funny when I first read it. That's. It, it, I wonder if we could do an entire, and we could probably have an entire thread on the ways that the Bible has been like presented or curiously translated. I mean, that, that example from um, Wolfilla, I mean, calls to mind immediately that example that was pulled from a, I think a Chinese legal textbook or something like that, but they were using the, um, the incident where Jesus is, you know, convincing the crowd to, to not stone a woman and they changed <laughs> the ending. Are, are you familiar? Yeah, I, I've seen it on Twitter, which is how I know about it. Where they they all piled onto the he, he's basically said, uh, uh, "No one is without sin, so yeah, otherwise yeah, everyone he, would be murderers." So he, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's like um, he he gets the crowd to go away, saying you know, with the the original ending, but then they tack on a bit at the end where where he says, you know, if only if only the blameless could judge, then you know, law would have no basis. And then he personally kills her. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah my, anyway. It's not my religion to <laughs> yeah. get upset about, but I think I'd be pretty annoyed with that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and it sort of, sort of flies in the face of the, yeah, in the core of it. Um, but anyway, sorry, continue as digression. Yeah. No, I'm just saying that, uh, yeah. So certainly there are, by the way, also, uh, when Ulfila translated the Bible to Gothic, he also skipped out a whole bunch of stuff um, in, in the Book of Kings, and possibly Samuel also, you know, a lot of the war stories, because he's basically like, these guys these guys don't need more war. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he battlerized the whole thing to just, like, 
let's you know let's not hold this up as an example for them and the two edits seem kind of contradictory i never thought about it before but uh it is what it is i never studied the matter closely though so there could be a uh, a particular i'm getting wrong but the general again getting back to the point yes zeitgeist does exist um you know there's definitely a certain feel to the times now i don't take some sort of hegelian view where this is like uh some kind of metaphysical telos which is drawing people in a certain direction necessarily there could be a telos there is a telos as far as i'm concerned but these things cultures work by processes and there's a process at play here and i generally think it has more to do with uh shifts in people's paradigms of knowing than anything else the way people understand knowing and um you know, assimilating knowledge of the world into their worldview indirectly shapes everything. And, you know, all the major epochs of world history either each have their own way of viewing being. Now, I'm sure, I said there, I'm sure there are plenty of philosophers out there who are just like, uh, oh, you're stealing this from so-and-so or whatever. I'm not a philosopher. Uh, so these are these are my own uh, considerations that I've had, but I do think that's where all these zeitgeists come from. Even you know trivial things. You know, you talk about how people dress nowadays. That's directly downstream of how people view their place in society and what dignitas means to them, what gravitas means to them, and that's something which changed dramatically over the past century that itself again is downstream of how you view the nature of man and society which is again downstream of more fundamental philosophical propositions so i would say everything is ultimately now most people aren't sitting around with philosophy texts and and pondering these changes for most people it's subliminal at a certain point the filters through which you see the world you know, they become part of your, they're part of your consciousness. They're instilled in you from when you're young. And that's the way your views on things develop, right? It's not a conscious decision by most people, but it gradually, these shifts gradually happen as the uh, frameworks through which people are educated change. I don't know if that was clear or not, Yeah, but uh, that was my thought. No, I, I think that checks out. There's, um, I mean, I have a bunch of thoughts too, if you don't mind my like briefly holding forth. Um, just, just thoughts that I've had in reaction to that. I mean, you know, there's, it seems like there's almost a fairly pure expression of a lot of zeitgeist in, in the way that you look at art. And I, I don't know this for sure. And I mean, it's hard to identify how you actually could know this without actually directly living it. But um, I, I guess in particular, I'm thinking about things like Art Deco, where, you know, you look at Art Deco visual art and maybe combine it with, yeah, say jazz music. And you try and imagine what it was like to be alive in the 1920s and what it meant to be alive in the 20s to somebody who was in that period. And it feels like a, I mean, like a time of fairly great optimism and I don't know, movement 
you know, I mean, if you look at an Art Deco painting, there's there are all these lines. The the way that lines are used, and the way that horizons are used, and the way that things are depicted is like um, almost transcendental, and in the sort of acceleration and motion that's pic- depicted. And I don't know how valid that is um, as as history or as interpretation, but yeah, nineteen twenties nineteen twenties were a uh civilizational dancing plague expand on that well uh, no (laughs) i think i see what you're saying though i mean well it's weird because i imagine it was very different in europe than in than in the united states but at least in the u.s i mean it felt like just kind of a well yeah maybe dancing plague is realistic and it was kind of a disintegration too, right? I mean, it was this period of mass urbanization and like maybe centers of culture moving to cities. Um, someone was asking about the transit, the, the period from 1877 to 1945. And it feels like that was actually a pretty key period in the United States where like, you know, the frontier was closing off. You know, there was a really rapid second industrial revolution. Um you know, to the extent we were an agrarian country, that became significantly less true over that period. And immigration. Maybe, immigration. And immigration. Fun, fundamentally. Yeah. My own family came in during that period. And uh, uh, many men, I, I don't know exactly, but I, probably about half or definitely the plurality of immigrants came during that period. I don't have the exact numbers, but you know, of all the different periods of immigration, probably the plurality came between 1870 and World War II, if not the outright majority. Yeah. Uh, probably even the outright majority, honestly. Yeah, I think for me too, actually. Um, yeah, my my Jewish ancestors came from um, um, Wartenberg, I think in the 1870s or 1880s, um, you yes. know, Croatian, Slovenian, they were they were slightly later, I think, right before World War One. Good time to leave leave the Balkans, but yeah, I, I had some older older English ancestors too. But I think those are more distant relatives. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. So I I, I think I agree with you so far. So I mean, like, suppose that you suppose that somebody accepts the idea of a zeitgeist and like. Suppose they're even able to characterize it somehow using using words or phrases that are intelligible to contemporaries who are not living in that period. I mean, do you, do you think that's actually sufficient to convey what it would be like to live in a time like that? No, because Fair you're enough. still you're still yeah. I mean, uh, there's not that much more to say. You're still going to be filtering that through. You know, people complain about presentism a lot, including myself, but to a, there's a certain amount of presentism which is unavoidable and which you cannot break out of. Um, even people who see themselves as, you know, um, reactionary or trad or whatever you might call it, are themselves treating those things through a very modern lens. That's something I go on and on about, but probably just going to get a lot of people mad. But basically, I think we've talked about that before. We have talked about it before. 
you know, these return to tradition uh, mentalities are themselves the fruit of a very, very modern mind. And there, basically, there's no real way to break out of it. And that's fine. There doesn't need to be. You, you're, you know, as far as, a, a, you know, someone irreligious might say, it is what it is, and you're in this world, so make the best of it. And a religious person who may have principled objections to the zeitgeist or whatever, look, God put you here. He put you here now. And uh, deal with what you have. Deal with the tools in your toolbox. Uh, you know, I don't think that's so much of a problem. You know, people try to, you know, get out to a different mindset. And, and I think that ties into um, some other subjects maybe uh, which we'll talk about, which are, you know, different ways a person can study history and what their utilities are. You know, there's certain advantage to trying to take yourself out of a modern mindset, but you have to recognize the limitations of that. One I think we can move on, but I have one other question for you. And maybe this is a more personal question than, than something that's professional. But when talking about getting yourself out of, out of, let's say, a contemporary mindset, I find in some ways it's been, I can imagine it's been easier for me to do that as I've gotten older. And I say that only because I remember how things used to be now. You know, I mean, I remember what the world felt like. In, in the 1990s, especially the late 90s, when you know I was in my older teens and 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 had a more historical or political awareness, and I mean things just really felt different then. You know the the way that the world felt after after 9/11 is a very different way than the world feels today. And so when I at least when I put forth some effort, I can kind of abstract myself out of the present and remember how things used to be. I, I don't know that I can interpret contemporary events through the lenses of before. I mean, like what would what would a person in the nineteen nineties even think about what's happening in the world today? I think they might just be very confused. But do you feel like going in the other direction, having lived through through different zeitgeists has made the past that you had an experience more accessible if only because you have more points of view that you can access and in interpreting it? I think it's less points of view, uh, views it to access and more dislocation. Yeah. You, know, you think of somebody who, who lives in a village his whole life and he goes to, uh, I don't know, uh, a suburb. He's going to have a more difficult time um, assimilating that than somebody who's been dislocated and has been in multiple different environments. He's been in a village, in a city. Now he goes to a suburb. He'd probably have an easier time assimilating with it only because his mind is not locked into a single frame and he recognizes the dislocation he recognizes the the difference between what was and what is and so he's more able to um you know he just re he's just more cognizant of the fact that the way he sees things is filtered through what's going on around him so yeah. probably, but I, I came of age politically. Um, I would say I first became aware politically when Obama was elected, and I first became really engaged politically during the 2012 election. So I did not really, 
you know, I, I had a certain sense of what things were like pre-2016, but not enough to uh, for me to really say I've been around in more than one uh, zeitgeist. I'm fundamentally a product in terms of my frame, my political frames, as much as, the you know, I hate putting these words out of my mouth, but a product of the age of Trump. Wow. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it, it's it's a little bit hard for me to grapple with what that all zoomers be are like. All zoomers yeah, are. It's, yeah. it's just is. It's not good or bad, it's just the reality. Do you think we're past that? I mean this is a contemporary question. You know, I mean, certainly wouldn't pass muster in our historians, but was it was it Zhu and Lai who said uh, that it's too early to tell yeah. uh, the results of the French Revolution? There's Apparently no way to a... tell. This is this is not, you know, we're we're definitely still in middle, just at the beginning, in fact, of a massive upheaval and realignment. Right, you still see um, these strains growing. I don't. I think we've barely started it. You think of it like the age of Jackson, where yeah, Jackson came and and yeah, there were a few years where Jackson was the big player and he tore everything up and you know, caused all these realignments, but the things he set in motion continued for decades after. So I, I definitely don't think we're anywhere near the end of the rodeo. Um, there's plenty to go. I have no way of knowing what's going to happen though, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, honestly, I was, I was thinking earlier today about whether or not you could frame the current war in in Ukraine as like a weird last gasp of 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 the war period, you know, from nineteen fourteen on, like one one last little dust up from that that entire set of conflicts. And I, I ultimately decided I didn't quite believe that frame. I mean, I think it would be a hard sell. But yeah, you you could you could say that if you're also willing to say that the wars in the Balkans in the 1990s were the last gasp of the wars of Ottoman expansion, which which is a fair point to make, hmm. maybe. But at a certain point, your categories become meaningless um, if they span too much of a period. Yeah. <sighs> risks of creative ontological exercises so okay so let's um let's say that that it's very difficult to understand like you can't quite put your mind in in the way that people used to see the world or experience the world that feels like one thing that history can't do and that also might make history very difficult. So what are we actually getting out of it? Yeah, so that's <laughs> big, big question. But uh, fortunately, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about that because I'm a, uh, I'm a history obsessive. Um, basically, I have, in my mind at least, I'd say I have uh, five, five main uh, things that a person could pull out of history, five different purposes why a person would study or teach history. And each way has a different method of learning and different, you know, different outcomes. You could get different things out of it. 
And each one has its strengths and weaknesses and suited for different people. I'd say the first, you know, going in an ascending order from most basic to most uh, sublime, I guess you'd say. The most basic is um, using history or learning history as a tool to transmit certain civilizational values, right? So you could have all kinds of civilizational values. That could be patriotism. It could be piety. It could be uh, you know any other virtue that your society values. That gets reflected through a grand sweeping narrative of history. You know, we talk about Whig history now. There have been many similar schools of history in, uh, you know, over history, over the course of history, which framed all of history as um, a lesson in a certain point, right? So there's these sweeping narratives. Um, often these narratives are, are deceptively monocausal. Right, where where you Risky. frame it, you frame it all about you know you frame it as everything is coming from a particular point. Again, Whig history is a classic example of that. Also, another characteristic of this type of history is it incorporates a lot of myths and legend. This is where myth really uh, comes into play. So I'll give a whole bunch of examples now, just to explain what I'm saying better. So. Let's talk about the early Roman Republic, right? The way anything we know about the early Roman Republic is from writings many, many centuries later uh, with no clear chain of transmission. Pretty much most of the particular stories and details are either embellished or uh, totally, you know, uh, uh, created or fabricated. Um, the the main uh, outline of the history is correct as a general rule. That's the position I take. This is a matter of big dispute, but basically, there's a huge amount of myth there. <clears throat> so you look at what these myths are and what do they represent. So uh, let's talk about one, right? Uh, Musius Scavola, right? So the story goes that uh, after Tarquin was thrown out of Rome, and he, you know he comes back with an army. Uh, and you know, Musius Scavola is captured. You know, he snuck out of Rome. He's, he's captured by the enemy. And basically, when they brought him in front of, I think it was Lars Porcena, uh, he stuck his hand into the coals, into the fire, and just kept it there till it was totally burnt with a totally straight face. And that totally, you know, freaked the enemy out. And they're like, ah, we're not. So again, that's one myth. Now that is certain values of patriotism, of, you know, taking things, you know, stoicism, which is, which were very Roman values. But again, this is a myth that transmits those sorts of values. There's a reason why every Roman school child knew who Musius Scavola was. Or you have the uh, story of the, you know, the oath of the Horatii, right, where they get, went ahead and, uh, you know the three brothers fought, fought the three enemies, and they, and one of them survived. And then the sister was mourning the loss of her betrothed, who was one of the enemies. And so the brother went and killed her. These are the type of myths again of of, of country before family. Unironically, yeah. a uh, 
fascist sort of mentality. Obviously, the Fascis come from Rome too. Right, so that's another uh, myth. Or talk about the story. This one may not even be a myth. Uh, obviously, there's no way to tell, but uh, Marcus Junius Brutus, right? Plutarch says how when, uh, after they threw the Tarquins out, his sons, some of his sons conspired to bring Tarquin back into the city. And basically, Brutus stood there and watched, you know, poker-faced while his sons were scourged and beheaded. Um, and again, these are myths and narratives that support a national ethos and and civilizational values for the Romans. We have that with America too. I mean, you have the story of the American Revolution, which, uh, you know, when you actually look at what the Sons of Liberty were doing, you know, there's a reason why that's not taught to school children necessarily. They're not shown the more <laughs> ugly part because there's a grand narrative. I did a thread uh, a while back about Thomas Brown, who was a, a Georgia uh, Tory who he wasn't going to take up arms, but basically a, a mob of Sons of Liberty uh, beat him, mutilated him, burnt his toes off, uh, you know, all kinds of unpleasant things like that. And so he turned into one of the most diehard, you know, Tory um, militia commanders. Definitely, you know, in, in that, you know, along the uh, Florida-Georgia line. So, you know, the kids aren't taught that because that's not part of the narrative that's meant to impart certain civilizational value. Also, the story of America being the scrappy underdog beating the British. I'm in the middle of a series of threads demonstrating that's not, that wasn't the case. But, you know, it's the British who were the underdogs, uh, as provocative a claim as that may be. Did, did the British present themselves that way? No. <laughs> no they did not. Um, but, right, so that's another example of, of myth. Even even go to Washington Irving and, and George Washington and the cherry tree to give a more trivial example. So you look at what sort of values were valued by early Americans or Americans in the 19th century and the sort of honesty, straightforwardness is one. And so you have these myths that are taught to school children and the like, which reinforce those values. Good. You know, you have now more on the more malevolent side, you have the 1619 project. It's the same exact thing. It's a deceptively simple sweeping narrative, except the values it's trying to spread are not those of patriotism or honesty or hard work. It's of racial animus and hatred of one's country uh so that's that this is the standard history which is taught in schools this is what it's for it's not to tell you about what actually happened and that's fine i don't think that's a bad thing you know a lot of people listening to this i'm sure they're thinking oh you know it's not true it's not actually what happened this is a bad way to teach history it's not it has its place you know the mass of the, the you know the general mass of people who aren't very interested in history or children. You want to inculcate them with civilizational ideal ideals and give them a sense of where they come from and a, a shared commonality and the like. And so you tell them these stories, and they serve a very important role in holding societies together. So it's good There's for school children. It's good for the basis of you know any adult who's not. Uh, 
diving more deeply into history, but just their consciousness of their identity. So I do think it's good for that. So that's the first. I I think there's there's one example of this that I actually talked about in the last podcast with um, Anton. And I think it's particularly interesting because the way that he tells it, there is like a a use of this this kind of history um, in the Soviet Union that took off in the 1970s, where and to hear him tell it, um, and this this itself is maybe you know a kind of history that's not quite necessarily true, but attempts to capture something. Um, there was a great deal of optimism, so he says in in the 60s in the Soviet Union that faded away in the Brezhnev era to something just like a grinding, gray, dull zeitgeist. And a response to this was kind of this valorization of the Great Patriotic War. And suddenly this became like a almost a defining feature of what it meant to be a Russian nationalist. And it's it's really come out, I guess, in in the last you know weeks, months, when you actually look at some of the rhetoric that's being used on on Russian TV. It's it's kind of very alien, even even taking into account the way that you know people in the West tend to know less about the Eastern Front and what what happened there and what the experience must have been like from the perspective of the Soviet Union. I mean, the, the sort of the ongoing resonance or, or kind of um, enduring symbolic like salience of of what that war was and the way it's presented to contemporary Russians is something that I think is even an awful lot for, you know, an, an American who, yeah, I mean, World War II was, there's, a, there's an American myth of World War II and what it meant for the United States to be in World War II and what it meant for our place in the world as Americans. But I mean, th- this seems like, you know, it's dialed up a few notches and, you know, more immediately available to to Russians when they're thinking about what is happening in Ukraine and, and in Eastern Europe right now. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's necessarily a question that comes out of that, but it feels particularly salient to me. Like it's something that can really, in a way, undergird a culture, even if, and maybe maybe as a substitute for some other kind of, you know, unifying factor or, or cause for optimism. Well, not even a matter of cause for optimism or unifying factor. <clears throat> this sort of sense, historical myths are critical for any nation. Now, obviously, again, things can be, the myths can be deployed towards positive ends or negative ends or neutral ends or context-dependent ends. And uh, I think both, uh, certainly both of us will agree that in this case, it's being utilized uh, in a... Uh, a very negative sense to to support some very negative things, but it's a it's a myth that is totally uh, excusable and understandable uh, to me. Um, you know, the Second World War was especially, you know, the Russians would certainly have a myth coming out of that, given the the, the proportion of their population lost to that war. Uh, that makes perfect sense. I don't I don't begrudge anyone their national myths. I don't begrudge anyone their national myths because, again, at this level of history, truth. So far, I didn't yet get to a level of history where truth per se is that important. Obviously, you're not going to go all North Korea and totally <laughs> fabricate 
things whole cloth and make up a whole history that never happened. But as a matter of the spin, you are going to be simplifying it tremendously and creating this good guy, bad guy kind of scenario and setting yourselves up as the heroes and you're the heir to this legacy of heroes. And and that's fine. I think that's necessary for for any culture to have. Uh, So I don't begrudge them that. Anyway, so so that's the first level of history, its utility and how it ought to be taught. When you teach it in in that sort of way, then yes, you focus on the dramatic, on on the myths, on the stories. You know, think of the Alamo. The the story of the Alamo uh, fits perfectly into this category because it serves no purpose really other than to inspire a sense of, of patriotism, of defiance, whatever it may be in Americans, even though the actual story of the Alamo uh, most likely didn't turn out the way most Americans think it did. You know, uh, there's a a contemporary diary uh, from a Mexican soldier, which seems to indicate that Davy Crockett and a whole bunch of Americans surrendered and then were executed, Uh, which I did not know that. Again, there is some dispute about the uh, diary's veracity, but it's been dated back to that time, if I if I recall correctly. I read into this once. But again, the story that's told, it doesn't matter whether this actually is the reality or not, because the story which we teach to our children is for a purpose of inculcating certain values into them. So it doesn't really matter whether it's embellished or mythologized a little bit. Now, the second level, I'd say, which requires a little more, you know, reading, uh, understanding of history is using history as a general inspiration. That's another utility you could get of it. There are a lot of clever ideas, good ideas, leadership lessons that you could get out of history, right? Just as a, a font of good ideas. You know, when humanity's been around for as long as it's been, lots of people a lot smarter than you have had very good ideas and have implemented them well. So, you can, you know, read the life of someone, or you read the life of Napoleon or Alexander or Rockefeller or whoever it may be, and just get ideas from there. And obviously, you don't need to think very carefully about what the reality was like for Alexander, Napoleon, or Rockefeller. You just need to think about whether you can somehow make this applicable in your environment, regardless of whether uh, it worked the same way for them. Right, it's actually. I don't know if I should say this story, <laughs> but go nuts. I um, uh, I used my uh Bible study as a way to win a schoolyard fight, um, <laughs> because I, you know, in the book of Joshua, I was fairly young, you know, and I uh, did plenty of studying on my own ahead of my peers. I read the book of Joshua before almost any of my peers did, but there's the story of the city of Ai, which uh, you know they needed to take, and there's this whole ambush set up where the Israelites set up an ambush behind the city, and then they fled, so the people of Ai left the city to chase them, and then uh, the other people came out from behind them, and then the Israelites who were fleeing turned around, they caught them in the middle, and obliterated them. And uh, 
long story short, there was a bit of an ongoing feud slash rivalry. My school was a bit of a, a wild west at times when it came to schoolyard uh, order. And basically, I had a bunch of friends run away from these guys and get them into a certain position with other people hiding behind them. And then they were surrounded. And uh, so, uh, you know, you can get all kinds of ideas from anywhere. That's just incredible. It's just one example. But um, obviously, again, you could read an anecdote. It doesn't matter if the anecdote's true. This is kind of a superficial reading of history just to get ideas, leadership ideas, tactics, um, any sort of thing. And you can translate these ideas into almost any field of life, you know, if you have enough of an imagination. And the only real serious thought you need to give is on your present circumstances, whether this is actually a good idea and doesn't just sound cool. So I'd say that's a second level of um, understanding history and uh, getting utility out of it. Now there's a third way of understanding history, and this is what I would call the uh, ultimate um, midwittery sophomoric would be a better term the sophomoric way of studying history because the people who do it think they're very clever and constantly go around referencing their extensive yet shallow historical knowledge to support their points and this is studying history as a means of predicting the future Mm. Um, so it sounds very clever when you reference things that happen and say oh this is going to happen again this is how history indicates that it'll go like this and so on I, I have a very dim view of studying history uh, in this way because if for a while I thought I was absolutely crazy, by the way, when I was a teenager, and I, and I thought this, I had this idea then already that this is uh, a, a, you know an absolutely ridiculous way of studying history because there are so many tiny variables that radically reshape the entire scene. And if you're going to be talking about how things developed 500 years ago and trying to translate that into how things are developing now while not accounting for the hundreds of thousands of you know unique quirks or, or differences between these two periods of time you're just dealing with a very a very flawed data set you know you might be able to say oh, uh, you know, I have a general vibe that it's going to go a certain way because I have a general vibe that things went uh, that way in the past. And maybe you'll be right. But you won't be right because you actually did a serious analysis. You'll have lucked out. You'll be wrong also many times. You'll be right. There's no, you can't call this a discipline. The analogy I gave to this on Twitter recently, I said, it's like a guy who looks at a tumor or looks at it, looks at a bump on someone's skin. So yeah, that's a malignant tumor. maybe he's right he might be right but you know you wouldn't go about calling him a doctor for getting that right you know he just made a rough guess based on how things look to him or you know his knowledge of the family's medical history or whatever it may be but again this is this is not able to be called a discipline and this is something that a lot of people go about doing journalists in particular do this all the time and twitter is rife with these sorts of takes which is, you know, basically goes like, oh, I've heard this before. You know, I know how this is going. And 
It sounds clever because you could reference all kinds of obscure historical events, uh, but it's really just, you know, college dorm tier discourse. What? I okay. I'm I'm actually curious. What? What? What are like your top, like your your top ever, like your top three, like specific most hated examples of this? Because it seems like you have a catalog. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I uh, I keep a grudge for a long time. I would say that uh, World War II, obviously, anything pertaining to World War II, and this is something that I know half the world agrees with me on, should be utterly banned from uh, using in discourse. It just it, it just lends itself to such horrible takes in any direction, whether rise of Nazism, appeasement, this, that. Always, always incredibly stupid takes coming out of World War II. I'd say that's equivalent to, to not three, it's equivalent to 30 levels of, uh, <laughs> of uh, you know, bad, bad sources. Um, <clears throat> Protestant Reformation is another one. Um, huh. I see a lot. I see a lot when people talk about um, ideological dissent and they, you know, start comparing it to the Protestant uh, Reformation and the uh, divisions it caused in Europe and the like. I don't, I don't like that one either. Um, that would, I'm not going to go into that now, but I'm just going to put that out there. And let's see the other. Oh, another one I hate is the last days of the Roman Republic. Whether it's Sulla or Caesar, the only good analogy that I like, and that's more for poetic reasons than for actual historical bearing is uh, uh, Cato, the character of, or possibly caricature of Cato the Younger. You know, and what Cicero said about him, he speaks as though he's in the Republic of Plato, while in reality he's in the slums of Romulus. That That's an archetype that I can get behind. But most of what comes out of discourse about the fall of the Roman Republic also is is pretty annoying. But anyway, getting back to getting back to history as a means of predicting the future. So I think that taken uh, as a discipline like that, it's um it's terribly useless. The only way you can make it useful is through a, an insane amount of work. You need to actually dive down to whatever phenomenon you're talking about, understand the century of history before it, understand as many the more the merrier, as many of the quirks and peculiarities as you can, you know, including what the price of corn was and how that interacted with, you know, whatever, any number of phenomena, you know, depending on what you're trying to, to get out of there. You got to understand all those details and exactly how they played with one another. And then you can identify one out of the many, many vectors that influence historical change. Because obviously, change doesn't come from any one thing. It comes from many, many, many different forces that work together in oftentimes strange ways. So you can possibly identify how one of those forces worked and was then influenced by the others. And then maybe, if you're really, really brutally honest, 
and have a very thorough understanding of how things work now, also down to the granular level, maybe you can identify the same sort of vector. But you're not going to be able to predict how that vector is going to interact with the 10,000 other vectors at play. So as far as I'm concerned, it's functionally useless. It could give you vibes, which is nice. Vibes are nice, but um, I don't think you're going to have much more of a track record of being correct than if you just spun a die you know, to get your results. So I, I, I have an possibly irrational hatred for this school of thought of, of studying history. I call it the journalist school of thought, which is <laughs> you, you, know, you study history with an intent to, to predict what's going to happen. Closely related, but much more valuable, is the fourth level, which I think is, um, I would say that's where most solid historical work goes on, which is history as a means of understanding why something is as it is now. Um, now, that can either be the result of idle curiosity, you know, you're antiquarian and you just want to know how an institution developed in a certain way, or it could be, um, you know, something uh, much more utilitarian and useful. So if you're a lawyer, for example, um, you're going to want to know the history of a law, what forces got it employed, especially if you're a politician, right? You're going to want to know why a law was put into place, uh, how a system works, you know, think of Chesterton's fence, Basically, to know how something works or why something is the way it is. So you need a knowledge of history for that, right? So it could be either curiosity or utility. But either way, the nature of the historical knowledge that you need for that is you need to be very precise and rigorous. But at least you can narrow your field. You, you narrow your field of vision down to the institution that you're studying and the things directly peripheral to that. So if you're studying the Senate, uh, you basically just need to understand principles of federalism and the other institutions of the federal government, and you know maybe some, uh, maybe a few other peripheral points. But <clears throat> and then you do a deep dive on that and trace the evolution of the Senate. That's just one example, but it could be of a law, it could be of a school of thought, whatever it may be. That's a way of understanding how something is now. And that's very useful because a lot of times understanding why something is now informs you um, of the, re you know, the, the arguments for keeping it a certain way or changing it. And so it helps you make decisions about what's the proper thing to do going forward. It feels uh, kind of Chesterton-y, right? Yes. Like you know, the, the old story about the fence, like, okay, we don't know why this fence was here, but it's certainly here. So should we remove it because it's an encumbrance or is it actually serving some purpose today? So maybe history can actually help you answer that sort of question. So, yeah, I mean, that's taking it on the, in the conservative direction. You could just as well take it in the direction of change um, in terms of understanding why something is in place and, and therefore, and, and what its effects are and therefore why it ought to be changed. But in either I'm case, sure. knowledge of the history is important. And then again, like I said, there is also just the antiquarianism of it, which is basically anyone who's studying an institution which is long gone.
So uh, if you're studying, you know, um, archaic Greece, you're just uh, you're just curious how archaic Greek Greece worked. But you know, there's no there's not going to be any practical value for you except for maybe getting the ideas. But again, that's not something that requires you know that much involved study. That's fine too. Antiquarian history is fine too. It's not utilitarian, but I'm not a utilitarian. I'm, I'm very. This is most of my history too. I think this is most of the good history, the solid history, the useful history that goes on. Uh, and finally, though, there is a level of history which I think is superior to all of the above. And <clears throat> this level of history is about knowing who you are and what your obligations are to your ancestors and your descendants. You might call this Burkean, but I take it farther than Burke. Um, basically, I, I take a very Burkean view, which is that you are the product of thousands and thousands of years of human civilization. And you have an obligation, everyone has an obligation to their forebears. And for me especially, this takes on a particularly religious tone. Obviously, there's a civic tone where I, I consider myself to have a tremendous debt to uh, Anglo-Saxon civilization, which brought the country that I, I live in to the point where it is. And that's an important thing for me to uh, reflect on and understand my debt to that tradition. But I have an even more ancient tradition, which uh, informs my relationship to God, right? My religion. So I need to understand what my ancestors went through, their tribulations, the development, whatever it may be, all to understand who I am. And everyone has an identity, who they are. And to study history devoid of the myths, the myths are a starting point. You need to move on from there. At a certain point, if you're a highly historically aware person, and you need to start really reflecting on the hard realities and and the real sacrifices, the real heroism, and the real evil, whatever it may be, and it could be a combination of both, which brought you to where you are and what your obligations are to your posterity as a result. Um, I think this requires the usage of all the above methods of studying history. You need to have the basis of the myths because those myths, even if they never ever happened, are an important part of your identity. It's part of the identity of, of your people, of your nation, of your country, whatever it may be. And as such, it's important to know it and even to feel it, even if it didn't happen. Uh, beyond that, you need to have the, the real rigorous study of history and the real rigorous understanding of how things interplayed with one another to create the situation where you are now and what obligations that foists upon you. Uh, so I would say those are, are five different reasons why a person might want to study history and each of them has a different approach that needs to be taken and each of them has a different level of utility. Uh, so that, that was my, that was my um, shortened answer to your question. Shortened. I, I like that an awful lot. Um, I think I identify with all of these. Um, to even the knowing the future one. Yeah, I know we've discussed that before. <laughs> I, I I mean I I think you may have framed yeah, it but differently. Not publicly. Maybe not publicly. Yeah. Um, 
I just remember having some some conversation about I don't know it was it, it got pretty in the weeds. Um, I think I mean certainly in practical terms I agree with you that the way that it's done is is tiresome and and usually I mean I have a it's sort of an oversimplified story, but like, you know, the typical person knows like three historical events and anytime something new happens in the world that seems big, like right back to whatever one of those three most historical events seems most salient. And, you know, for most people it's world war two. And so this is exactly like when such and such and such, um, yeah, I and that's tweeted if they know any history at all. And usually it's Harry Potter, but <laughs> I tweeted once that, that, um, something to the effect that every person knows one story and filters, you know, everything they see through that one story. That wasn't speaking even purely in a historical sense, but with some people, it's a oppressor oppressed dynamic with other people, you know, whatever it may be. But yeah, people in history too, they tend to filter things through uh, very particular stories, even where it doesn't exactly fit. They just shoehorn it in. Yeah. Everything's monocausal. Um, yeah. By the way, monocausal is a word that has uh, um, been drilled into my consciousness, and it's a word that just comes out now because I see it every time I go to your profile. <laughs> Sorry, I think. Um, so I guess I have two. I mean, I, I really like the way that you framed all of that, and and especially that fifth point about maybe aligning yourself in in time i mean you you talked a lot about maybe some of the duties that you owe your ancestors in some way which does feel very burkean and i don't know how much people relate to that necessarily but i see that right i mean a thousand generations of people were spending their lives living and dying and and working and raising children in such a way with with their own visions for the future and I mean, do I owe them something? I think to an extent I do. And. Well, let's put it like this. Do you owe your parents something? Absolutely. Right. They raised you. Your mother carried you for nine months. They paid all sorts. They paid tons of money. They gave you love, affection, time, food, shelter, raised you, taught you right from wrong, etc., etc., etc. You owe them, right? Do you owe your grandparents anything? Also, yes. I mean, they, both directly and I think, you know, yeah. you're my parents. So is there a reason why you don't owe your 10th time great-grandfather something? Yeah. I definitely agree with you. I, I think that's a good way of framing it. Although, I, I wonder how convincing that will be. I mean, I think there's um, something about the United States contemporarily... I'm not using that word correctly, but yeah, you know, like contemporary United States where... The idea of filial piety seems pretty absent in some way relative to many periods in history. I'm not sure about this. I would want well, to go check and read I mean, carefully. I know I'm speaking a foreign language to a lot of people because the language of duties in general is a foreign language to Americans. Americans speak of rights, not of duties. It's a big problem. It's a big problem. Uh, I think that even rights cannot be properly understood um, when they're separated from duties. I think Americans would do a lot better to stop talking about their, uh, to stop conceiving of their rights uh, 
as something belonging inherently to them, and rather considering what they call a right, which exists, they have a natural right to something, but it's more a secondary result of other people's duties towards them. That is to say, right, you're going to tell me you have a natural right to life, and this is going off of natural law way of thinking, right? But it's not that you innately have a right to life because you will die, right? You will die of natural causes at some point. What you have is that everyone else has a duty not to kill you. By extension, you have a right to life. Um, Your right to property is not innate to you. Um, It's rather the result of everyone else's duty not to take your stuff. Now, when you think of it like that, you also realize your duties to other people, but it also gives a more coherent version of rights because nowadays, anytime anyone wants something, they just say it's their right. It's my right to whatever it may be, to be um, you know, listened to in, in such and such regard. Now, you have to ask yourself, take a step back. Is there a way I can justify by natural or whatever epistemology I'm using? Is there a way to justify everyone else having a duty to give me what I want? If you cannot justify that, then that should not be considered a right. The problem, the reason why rights discourse has gone off the rails is because we don't think of it in terms of the duties other people owe us and the duties we owe other people. Rather, we just think about it as something inherent to us that we possess on our own. And, um, you know, therefore, people make all kinds of absurd. You have rights inflation. All kinds of things are called rights now. And that just ends up weakening the entire concept of rights because if every whim that you have is a right, then your real sacred rights are just as viable as the right that you came up with yesterday. I've heard that. I've I've heard that specific latter argument before, and I mean, I mostly buy it. Um, but I hadn't thought about the reciprocality of of rights and duties in that particular framing, and it feels I, I a little the, bit. I owe the framing to to Mazzini, Giuseppe Mazzini. Interesting. When was he? Was he? It sounds Renaissance, but I'm only saying that. No, 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 no. Late 1800s, Italian. That would have been I don't know how you describe him. You know, he was a radical, but he he was a radical, but he um basically uh you know a, a, he wrote a whole book. I think it's called "On the Duties of Man," which is basically just railing against the notion of understanding your rights as something that you yourself hold and understanding it more in terms of the obligations you owe everyone else. There are a million arguments I can make for that. I made two arguments. The first, that it's true, and the second, that it has utility, meaning the argument that I just made from rights inflation is an argument from utility, and the argument I made formerly, which is that by natural law or whatever epistemology you have, you don't actually have an innate right. You rather just have duties of other people not to do to you certain things. Um, but I would I could go on and say all kinds of other things. For example, people need to understand their actual duties to one another. And that's something that's also lost now. Like we said, filial piety is not something that most people in the West take seriously, unfortunately. And 
Like I said, that's directly a result from the shift in how we conceive of rights. And the shift started centuries ago. This is not a new thing, but it's it's accelerating and exacerbating as time goes on. So do you have you read uh and like he's not a historian, but I'm somewhat taking him seriously because I mean he was a writer. And um anyway, Paul Fussell. Um are you familiar with the Great War in Modern Memory? I am not. Okay. It's it's good. I think it I think it's the worth it. Great War in Modern Memory? Yeah. World War One? Yep. Um so he he himself fought in World War II, but um, the book is about World War One, and he makes this argument that World War One, especially in Europe, was um, the cause of a very specific and delineated vibe shift. And he notes it as a point where all of these relatively lofty concepts that were just taken for granted and unironically in in the nineteenth century, sort of really died in the trenches and and in you know the the artillery fire on the Somme and at Verdun right like these notions of you know people talking about um you know how, how glorious it would be to die to your country for your country and you know I think a lot of these notions of duty to these to these abstractions even um were were murdered on the battlefield in just the same way that you know so many millions of, of men were and you know just the ability of people to believe in these concepts was sort of removed and 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 vanquished and you know he goes through a lot of examples and it is sort of a narrative generation like it's a sort of thing that you can't you can't prove i think but he does his best to identify this vibe shift and talk about what came before the war and what came after the the way that people discussed ideas and that feels like kind of a point where duty loses a lot of its purchase in in the minds of europeans at least yeah um so i was as you were saying that <clears throat> i was thinking of the uh, wilford owen poem uh dulcet de Caramest. oh so yeah just you know Obviously, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but uh, if in some smothering dreams you two could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in, him as a dead soldier, and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a devil sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud, of vile incurable sores on innocent tongues, my friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dulce decorum est pro patria mori. Which I think tells that story very vividly. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, as far as filial <laughs> piety, I mean, maybe that's never been particularly strong in the United States. I'm not sure about that, but it seems like, you know, there's been more of a tradition of leaving your family, heading west, striking out on your own, um, rather than some of the intergenerational and, and, you know, sort of extended family connections that have been more prominent in other places in history. I mean, maybe taking it to an extreme, even relative to Europe, where, you know, 
tribalism and and extended families were weakened by who knows what i mean i've i've, I've heard narratives about the church and its rules on consanguinity um having a lot to do with that but yeah um I can't remember quite how we ended up here. I think we were talking about finding our place in history, <laughs> the duty we owe to our ancestors. We're talking about, yeah, I, I was saying that that this notion of of do we we were both saying this notion of duty, which I was speaking of as, in my opinion, the highest form of history. Uh, but it, it is to many people who will be listening to this a foreign language because we're not accustomed to thinking of duties as such, and it's a shame the word the word right. If you search how many how often the word rights is used versus the word duties, it's a pretty depressing result. Do you think Burke just never do you think Burke lost? I mean, when I look at the the people that even on the right are talking about as philosophers, it doesn't seem like they're mentioning Burke much. Well, because Burke I like Burke a lot. I mean, look, I I have I have mixed feelings about him. Like I have mixed feelings about most people. Um, Fair, but um, he definitely lost out in terms of his ideas because, again, these ideas of continuity and having this duty towards the past. There are, by the way, there are still plenty of Burkean conservatives that you'll hear. Um. Sir Roger Scruton, Scruton, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, uh, was very much such a conservative, as far as I'm aware. Uh, but <clears throat> yeah, you're gonna you're you're, you're not going to find them as often because I think his conservatism didn't really stand up to the challenge of the 20th century and of the um, very depersonalized nature of society and the state the industrial state yeah that's probably i'm not elaborating this that much but but i think you're getting what i'm saying here yeah that um it's hard to understand the duty to a, a past and to uh entities that you have no concrete connection to i think industrialization had a lot to do with the issue but it's definitely not the only factor like i said trying to reduce things to single factors is the recipe for awful history. But all these things played a role. And uh, yeah, this notion of having a duty to generations past is one. Again, it's very alive. That's the thing. It's very alive in my world in terms of uh, Jewish obligations. Because we're all taught from a very young age Stories of martyrdom, of massacre, of self-sacrifice, of you know Jews giving up their lives rather than uh, give up the faith. A lot of our holidays center around that sort of self-sacrifice, Hanukkah, for example. And it's kind of drilled in that Jewish people, and I've heard this said explicitly many times, it's the Jewish people went through so much and your ancestors survived you know thousands of years of persecution and oppression and are you going to be the one who breaks that chain and that's a pretty potent message because when you're aware of the uh, tribulations that your ancestors went through and how they suffered 
you can't help but feel uh, a bit of shame. And there's a story that's told, which um, I don't know if it's true or not, but like many of those stories that are told, it tells you something about the culture that spawned its values. There's a story of a uh, young man in Tel Aviv who's uh, waiting online to buy some pork, you know, a secular fellow, and an old guy hobbles over to him and he says, you look exactly like a man I knew by the name of so-and-so. Yes, that was my grandfather. He says, okay, I was with him in the camps, in the concentration camps, and shortly before liberation, you know, the Nazis were all leaving. There was one Nazi who, you know, wanted to get one last, uh, you know, act out. And he wanted to humiliate your grandfather. So he called him out and he said, uh, you know, here's a piece of pork, eat it. And his, your grandfather said no. And the Nazi shot him in the head. I mean, this was already, this guy's father was born already, but he just shot him in the head, killed him. And uh, this guy's standing on line to uh, get his pork. And the story goes that he left the line and became religious once more. Now, story has all the makings of story, which is not true. And that could very well be. But I'm bringing it not for the story itself, but for the cultural value that it imparts, which is that your ancestors sacrificed a lot. Many of them died. Many of them were tortured. Many of them were expelled rather than give up their religion. And you're going to drop that? So it's a very potent message that I hear in one part of my life. But then in the secular part of my life, where there are civic obligations and the like, there's no word whatsoever about the sacrifices that those who built our civilization and our culture underwent. You're right that it may have not been my physical parents. But in terms of the culture I live in, that culture was built by people who, you know, carved a, a nation out of a wilderness inhabited by hostile nations, and they did so successfully, and they did so with tremendous sacrifice. And the bounty that we have, and the nation we have, and the culture we have, and the liberties we have, as cliched as that sound come from the sacrifices of many, 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 many brave men and women who fought and died for it, whether they died via massacre, via hunger, via disease, via war, whatever it may be. But we owe a lot to the people who created the country, and we have to recognize that. But I never hear that. I never, ever hear that. Why not? I should be hearing it. Every person living in this country is reaping the fruits of liberty. As much as people may complain, it's a lot better than almost anywhere else you go in the world. We have a lot of liberties here. Things are very good. There's Even the poor people here have more prosperity than most of the world in terms of actual material uh, benefits that they have, and definitely more so than the vast majority of history. So where's the gratitude for that? Where's the, um, where's the moral lesson that you need to have gratitude for the people who built this with their blood, sweat, and tears? We have an obligation to that, a civic obligation. That Obviously, that's not the same as a, 
religious obligation to God, but it's still a very important and very sublime thing. A person should definitely not discard that. And it um, it's very depressing that I never hear this message. And uh, you know, this is why I'm saying it's the highest form of history, but sadly one that is neglected. Yeah, I I think I came to this through a relatively unusual path. Um, I, I mean, I agree with you on most things. I again, coming from a very different place, um, I think a lot of it was spending a lot of time reading history and just developing perspective on. Well, creating that kind of coherence, right? Getting a sense of continuity of all of these things in the past and things that people did that resulted in the world being like what it is today. Um, seeing how the world today is different than what it was in the past and actually coming to identify with a lot of these people whose whose lives were real and intense and you know who are heroes, some of whom were were, were monsters. And um, also, I mean, frankly, um, taking acid. <laughs> Not to be completely flip about it, but um, there there were a couple of times when when I took acid, and I mean, just just had kind of an integrated vision of a lot of what I've been reading about and thinking about, and thinking about the way that I was going to live my life forward, and how my parents must have lived, and how their parents must have lived, and you know, as there's a kind of intensity of experience and thought that comes along with hallucinogen use. And I mean, I've I've never had so much as marijuana. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. And I I mean, I figured I, I, I was hoping you would be amused by, you know, the specific effect of, you know, an illegal drug on, on the way that I think about the world and specifically making me more in a sense, like viscerally conservative. Um, but yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I'm completely with you on this. I, I think I had a thread yelling at people about this a couple of years ago. I, I mean, it, it does make me really angry. Like you can take pride in these things, you know, not, not pride in the sense that you yourself are very good, but that you're the direct inheritor of a tradition that has done incredible things. And you should have the kind of pride, not, not feeling good about yourself because of what your ancestors did per se, but in that you're somebody who can continue this, this work that's been very good Matt. and you know, where it's been bad, you know, that's something that you can improve on. And it's very depressing to me that people seem unmoored from that and even, you know, directly hostile to it. It feels like a, a dereliction um, for, for no particular reason. I mean, I don't, I don't know why you would want to give that up. It's you, the reason why you'd want to give that up is if you're not working hard to further that goal. If you measure yourself against the people who built the Golden Gate Bridge in five years, who built the skyscrapers in Manhattan, who carved the path through the North American wilderness, who gave their lives in wars, who were war heroes, who are war villains even, but heroic war villains. If you compare your personal qualities to them, you know, Jim the accountant, Jim the accountant may come away feeling very inferior. And so therefore he prefers not to associate with the past at all, because he doesn't want to feel inferior. 
What Jim the Accountant doesn't realize, though, is that for all the heroes who are uh, sacrificing all that and working so hard uh, for their country, there are a hundred or a thousand ordinary people who are building up the nation and who are building up a culture simply by having children and raising them properly and and uh, you know being upstanding members of their local community and that's it just do that and you are living up if you just do that you are living up to what you need to live up to you're a part in the continue the continuation of the culture that you're in now anything more you do is you know even better if you want to be a great hero or or accomplish some great thing then wonderful but to you know but to be a part and to feel pride that oh i'm continuing this work you don't need to live much more than a mundane good decent productive life people don't realize that they think it's all about the heroics and the sacrifice, but it's not. If you had every person busy being heroic and sacrificing themselves, you wouldn't have a nation. You'd have a, ba- a, a band of thieves. You need solid, regular people who are just working and raising families. And, you know, Jim the accountant can be a wonderful, can even feel pride as being a wonderful continuation, as long as he recognizes that what he's doing is great work, is solid work. And as long as he actually lives up to those obligations that he has, uh, that's my read on it. Why people don't, um, why people don't associate themselves with the past anymore? Because our lives are so mundane. There's no more frontier. There's a, so people think like, okay, well, you know, it makes people feel weird and feel off. You know, like. This is what my ancestors, this is what our, my forebears, I would not even say ancestors because it could be immigrants. This is what my forebears have done. And uh, what am I doing to continue that? And so they feel inadequate. And so there becomes this almost pathological desire to rip up the accomplishments of those who came before you. No, no, they really weren't great people. They were just a bunch of cynical people who got lucky. Uh, there was nothing admirable about them. There's nothing that we should emulate about them. Because that takes away the feeling of inadequacy, of not living up to the example that they set. This is probably the uh, the the strongest strongest I've ever spoken on uh, on your podcast in general, but it bothers me a lot. Yeah, there there was one there was one thing that I think about with history that I think of as a direct use for it that perhaps fits into some or or multiple categories that you mentioned, but I'm going to call it out separately from those. And it's um, sort of the value of biography where when I see people in history, I see the way that specific humans lived and the way that they thought or wrote and conducted themselves in their lives. And I often find there are lessons for that. And even, even without lessons, like find, I don't know, sympathy for these people. I, I see parts of myself in them or parts of them in me and, and find things that are um, 
I don't know, worthy of emulation or just identification. And I, I wonder if there's kind of a, a way that reading history can let you reshape your life or think about who you want to be, not necessarily in kind of a narrative sense or, you know, an ancestral or forebear related sense, but just seeing some kind of a paragon and, and finding inspiration, how to personally live from that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was getting at with my, I think it was the uh, second uh, uh, level of studying history okay. that I mentioned, which yeah. is history as kind of a rough inspiration to get ideas from. So that those ideas can be ideas of what to do. They could be ideas of how to live. They could be ideas of what virtues to inculcate. Whatever it may be, it's just drawing uh, inspiration from other people's lives. Again, the value of biography, as you said. Um. Yeah, but again, I, that's that's very valuable. But again, I I still think less valuable than the sort of reading which makes one grateful to those people. But then again, if I read the biography of a great Chinese leader, I can get inspiration from it. But it's definitely not going to tell me anything about my obligations to anyone. Yeah. So it only falls under, um, you know that you know, that other level, not, not the higher level that I mentioned. Yeah. Cool. Well, that, that was a great answer to the question. I, I think I've heard history teachers giving, I think it's a question that's asked a lot of people who are interested in history. Like, why do I need to learn this stuff? Or why should I learn this stuff? I mean, like need is, need is even a very different question than why should, but I think it's usually answered in a way that's maybe dry or intellectualized in a way that feels excessive, um, which is maybe just a pathology of, you know, post-modernity where you, you almost like don't talk about how things affect you or move you or develop you. I don't know. I'm just editorializing at this point. Um, <laughs> I've been I, editorializing the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. So, okay. I, I had one other practical question for you. Um, if, if there's anything you specifically want to talk about, interrupt me. Like now's a good time. Listen, I, I talk about anything. I don't mind. I'll okay. just talk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so here's one other thing I was thinking about. And again, this is like a large and winding question, but I was in the shower and I was thinking about Game of Thrones because once again, so I, I, I came across a um, betting market on Metaculus, which was, does George R. R. Martin die before finishing his series? So I was thinking about yes. that. Um, and one thing that occurred to me to be irritated about was the fact that there's, I don't know if you've read these books, but you know, there's, there's this entire massive continent-wide spanning empire that has been in this medieval stasis for hundreds of years, which, okay, that's unrealistic already. But, but one thing that irritated me about it when I was thinking about it this time was that everybody in this, in this empire spoke the same language. And you could have a person on one far end of the empire speaking completely intelligibly the same, the same language that somebody in the far end was speaking. There were no difficulties in communicating. Even commoners from one side of the empire can go and speak with somebody from the other side and it was just you know this this completely common tongue which if if you look at europe my understanding is that dialects were very highly regionalized 
you know, if, if you move 50 miles in one direction, it might become difficult to speak with someone. And if you moved, you know, across, across France or across Spain, it, it would be, it would be challenging. And you can see remnants of that in, even in England today, where, you know, if you want to go and speak with somebody from a relatively rural area in certain parts of the country, it can be very difficult to understand anything that they're saying at all, even, even if we're a native English speaker. Um, so, you know, the, the story of this, as I understand it, is that most modern languages, as, as we understand them today, you know, French or German or whatever, were, were typically some particular dialect of a more diffuse language group that ended up being, becoming dominant, you know, during the course of, of public schooling and this sort of nation building that went on in the 19th century across much of Europe and, and the United States, where all these different regions that used to exist to be relatively distinct in culture and certainly in language, um, ended up being kind of hammered flat into a more uniform, um, uniform kind of nation of, of the type that we think about today. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a stylized set of facts about the way that culture evolved in, in Europe. But, you know, looking back, when we talk about, say, medieval France or medieval England, medieval Germany, we don't, I don't think that's particularly hammered home. And these, you know, these were real polities. All of these places, I mean, you know, the Kingdom of France, yes, it, it became fairly fragmented at various points in time. And, you know, the influence of, of the King of France at various points was somewhat constrained, like Ile de France. But, but, but like, you know, these polities existed and, and were somewhat discreet, even, even as the culture within them was quite fragmented. And all of this is to say that one thing that's happened in the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years in particular is something in the opposite direction where I see a lot of cultural convergence across countries in in a way that maybe would be breathtaking to somebody from you know say the 1200s you know if you if you were to imagine the same foods and restaurants were available in you know japan and the united states neither of which even were understood to exist by europe at that point in time but abstracting away from that just but but the polities have stayed relatively static so what i'm thinking about is i there tends to be a focus on on polities rather than culture and the the underlying culture tends to be variation in culture or uniformity of culture tends to be overlooked when you're looking at history just because political maps are easier to read and easier to see and it just feels like a curious inversion to me i guess like there's this mass cultural uniformity that exists now and that maybe has occurred um in spite of the political map not changing particularly much I'm not even sure what my question is. What do you think of all this? Uh, okay, I have a few thoughts. Um, uh, first of all, I, I didn't read all of uh, Martin's books because uh, it's... I'll just say I'm uh, a lot more prudish than those books. But he definitely does do a very bad job for someone who's ostensibly the realist as opposed to Tolkien, the fantasist. He does a very poor job of creating a realistic world. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, I would say that <clears throat> two things. First of all, what you're seeing now with American 
culture, I guess you could say the the hegemony of blue jeans, is it's at once, in a certain sense, it is overstated because there is a lot of local uh, uh, particularity left, even if there is a McDonald's there. Uh, you know, you go to um, somewhere in France, you go to a village in France, and whatever it may, it, it's certainly not, you know, American culture there. It's not as flattened as you're depicting. However, there is a worldwide empire, and that's been facilitated by the speed of communication and the speed of transport. There is a global American empire, which uh, is doing what it does, and I'm not, uh, you know, jumping into any sort of political thing here. But there are one of two ways. There's one of two ways that this could play out, and then of course there are a million combinations of the two. But the two main ideas that you could see is either that this empire continues on and genuinely flattens many of these regional differences into a single culture. And then in many centuries from now, when this culture collapses, it will be replaced by many uh, uh, successors which have evolved from this culture. Think of Gaul, right? You had the, uh, the Celts, you had the Gauls. The Romans came over time that whole that whole cultural diversity because Gaul was obviously culturally diverse between you know the north and south or whatever it may be that was all wiped out and there was a romanized culture which took its place and then all or the same you know goes in many places and then other cultures that succeeded the romans took over from there but the original gallic culture never came back so there is that possibility of certain cultures being flattened and in time, when the American culture goes away, it will be replaced by some kind of successor to American culture, which can evolve very differently from other successors to American culture. Alternatively, there were there have been many times where it looked as though a native culture was going to be wiped out, and it ended up not being wiped out. And I think the best example of that would be English. Um by the late 1200s, early 1300s, English, by the late 1200s, certainly, English was a dying language. Um, there was little hope that, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't seem likely that English would survive. The Normans, French was the, the lingua franca of all the people in any important position, and Anglo-Saxon was being relegated to irrelevance. Uh, just like um, you know, all kinds of other minority languages that just think of uh, think of Gaelic in in Ireland, which I don't have such high hopes for, even despite a concerted effort to revive it now. But the damage has really been done over a few centuries. Plus, I don't think they did a good job of how they tried reviving it. But that's a subject for a different time. But anyway, the point is, people thought that English would disappear didn't look like English was going to last, and yet it made a comeback. So sometimes you can have, it came a comeback heavily influenced. It never shed that Norman influence. I mean, we have pretty much all of our Latin descended words come from the Normans. It comes via Norman English. 
besides for the scientific words that came up later, which were direct Latin. But almost all the ordinary Latin um, words we use, uh, you could think about, uh, I don't know, an example might be pedestrian. Hmm. All right, so that's coming from ped for foot. Whatever it may be, almost all these Latin words, right? Equestrian, equestrian, another word, right? All these words, they they came, but they came via Norman. So Norman left its mark, but English did come back. And our core language that we speak is a Germanic language. It's it's it is English. That hasn't changed. So sometimes elements of local culture have a resurgence, and the uh, locals and the um, the elites assimilate to the local culture. That happened in Ireland during the medieval period, where the Anglo-Normans became uh, Gaelicized to the point where they were pretty much indistinguishable from the old Irish. So it could go either way. I'm not going to make a prediction, and there could be some kind of combination. Like I said, you could have a language that survives or a culture that survives but retains heavy influence. I don't know. But one thing is for certain, there will never be real cultural uniformity. It will always be broken up to a local level. And I think that what we're seeing now is an unusually high level of, uh, you know, of global culture. And that's purely the result of a Pax Americana. And that's not going to last. It's already not lasting, you might say. It's already collapsing. And this um, worldwide culture is not going to survive it. I wonder... Um, okay, I have a bunch of thoughts, but um, I guess before I touch on those even, what happened that caused the English language revival? Was it just Chaucer or, or what? Was he just emblematic of, of what happened? Oh, I'm a, okay. So my microphone was off. Yeah, so th- about the English language revival, I don't really know a whole lot about what the forces were that caused it to happen. But um, it seems to be that a lot of the uh, a lot of the elites started. A lot of it had to do with uh, the fact that France and England separated from one another. Before people don't realize, before the um, Hundred Years' War. There were French noblemen who held estates in England, meaning nobles that we'd call French noblemen, who held estates in England and Ireland. And there were English noblemen who held extensive estates in France under control of the two different kings. You could hold some things from the king of France, other things from the king of England. Very, very common. Pretty much all the major nobles had extensive lands on both sides of the channel. And things gradually um, disintegrate, you know, the, the relations between the kings of England as dukes of Aquitaine and the French kings as their overlords, disint- you know, disintegrated, degenerated, and collapsed. Um, when that finally happened, nobles had to choose a side. And the ones who were primarily based in France had their English lands taken. 
and the ones based in England had their French lands taken. And people had to choose sides. And that was really the beginning of a big dividing line between England and France, which was never repaired again. And never again was there that level of interconnection that there was prior to the Hundred Years' War. That had a lot to do, and that was a process, obviously, but that had a lot to do with the localization of the English nobility. And once that happened, French was less relevant as a language, and English became more relevant as a language. So I don't know that much about the linguistic aspect of it, uh, you know, to give you a full answer, but I would say that from what I understand, this is from reading uh, uh, Jonathan Sumption's Hundred Year War books, uh, there was a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of it had to do with the fact that uh, the English and French nobility were no longer as connected as they once were. Interesting. I completely buy that. That's That had never occurred to me that there would have been, I don't know, some relative uniformity. I mean, not complete, but at least a greater cultural exchange before the Hundred Years' War during, I mean, you know, with with the Angevin Empire intact. Um, Huh. I guess implications for the continuing dominance of the United States as a cultural force in the world. Cool. Um, My other question, though, I, I, I guess is around... Again, just a map. You know, you, you take something like Albion Seed, which has had a lot of influence in our groups and, and the way that we think about the United States, where, you know, once again, you, you look at a map of the United States and it's just a political map. But you can drill down and you can look at these very distinct cultural groups that were transplanted from the British Isles to the United States. And even in, even in, in the British Isles, they were relatively niche cultures or relatively distinct cultures. And then they were transplanted to the US and they, they kind of grew and took their different folkways and developed culturally in different directions. And I don't quite understand the history of it. I, I, I should read more books past Albion Seed and, and that colonial era. But Certainly by the 1950s, perhaps, there was some kind of a relatively similar nation building that happened in the United States where there was an emphasis on being an American rather than having a more local identity. And I think some of these older cultural groups maybe were not suppressed, but but submerged within that. But it's not like they disappeared entirely. You know, there's still vertical transmission of different cultural norms. If, if you're in the Midwest, the culture here is different than it is in California, which is different than it is in New York, which is different, and so on. And I wonder what the history of the world would look like if there was more of a focus on that kind of underlying cultural, um, I don't know, movement and flow rather than the political maps that we see. It seems like just a lot of things would be overturned. I mean, even even looking at what you're talking, and, and it's not like they're completely independent. I mean, I think your your example of France and England in the Hundred Years' War is a very good one where, you know, there were these different groups and suddenly a cultural exchange was cut off by war and, and you know, the realignment of elites and, and everything that flowed up and down from that. But it feels like there are some stories that are being missed by this. Absolutely. Um, I, I would 
The one thing I would say is you mentioned about if we focused on this instead of the larger political story, and that I don't think is practical, if only because culture, in my opinion, especially if you're talking about variegation of culture within a country, um, if you just talk about, say, let's say like Hackett Fisher, right, four major folkways, it ends up being neither fowl nor fish because you're not talking about the large national culture. On, on the other hand, you're not talking about where culture really manifests, which is on the hyper-local level. So if you want to make a detailed survey of hyper-local culture, that's very valuable. If you want to make a study of how the different parts played into a larger nat- national culture, and you focused on the national culture while acknowledging the contribution of regional subcultures. That's also another thing. But if you just focus primarily on the regional subcultures and how they interact with one another, you're going to be in this awkward middle ground where, on the one hand, you're not actually covering the uniqueness of the culture, so you're not capturing that, nor are you actually capturing the full ways in which they interact because they interact. Um, ultimately with all the other cultures around them. Now, I don't think I'm being very clear here, but I basically think that you either need to go down to the hyper level or you need to go on the national level and obviously don't ignore these different folkways, but they can't be the vehicle through which you say the story. Yeah. I think I follow what you're saying. I mean, it feels... It feels very nebulous. And it is nebulous. I haven't given that much thought to the subject. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. Um, anything else? Um, I've got a list here. Um, maybe one more thing to hit. Someone was asking about how religious conflict is differed over time. Um, someone was hitting that period from... Uh, 1877 and 1945 and what people are lying to about it uh to us about during that period i, I um, think that uh, subjects that won't take a half hour to answer might be <laughs> might be better at this point okay um let's do the last thing um who what what figure or theme of the napoleonic era is overlooked huh um well we gotta think about this one What's overlooked? I would say, and again, I'm saying this, my my, uh, knowledge of the Napoleonic Wars is is basic, not as thorough as, um, as, uh, you know, many other people's. But the one thing I would like to see much more of is the formation and the development of the, um, of of the local nationalist groups that arose in opposition to Napoleon. The Spanish, obviously, because they fought a bloody, you know, guerrilla war, they get a lot of attention. Even so, they don't get enough attention. Uh, but in Germany, you also had students who, who became very nationalistic. It's talked about, but definitely nowhere near as much as the 
you know, the, the big players, so to speak, are discussed. And I think that they had more of an impact on how the 19th century developed than those big players did. And so uh, I, I fully understand for purposes of narrative why they're more overlooked, but it's definitely something that I would like to see more of. Cool. Okay. One last question that I'll let you go. We've, we've almost done two hours. Um, we were talking earlier about this idea of history as, you know, a source of, you know, biographical inspiration, say, um, or, you know, the, the potential to go and look at a historical character in their life and the way they thought about the world and so on and see yourself in them or see them in you. And, and just, just out of curiosity, who do you in that way most identify with in history? If you had to pick somebody out, very That's personal a, question. Don't feel obliged very, to answer. But. Very, very personal question. And a lot of it depends on different points in my life. And I'm going to tell you a bunch of different people who I identified with at different points in my study and why. And uh, I should probably give some insight into my, um, into my way of thinking. Uh I identified, I, I posted this once in very, uh, uh, as a very, very cringeworthy, uh, very cringeworthy anecdote. But when I was younger, let's say about uh, 17, I very much admired Robespierre. Whoa. At, yeah. At the same time, and I still, I admired Cato the Younger also. Now, both of them have, a, have something in common. They're different in the sense that Cato the Younger didn't turn into an absolutely mad, you know, just kill everyone just to make a point. But there was a certain incorruptibility, personal incorruptibility, a strict personal austerity, and a willingness to take the idea through. Where you have an idea, ideology, what for Cato was the idea of the Republic. Uh, for Robespierre was also the idea of the Republic, to bring it through all the way to its conclusion, however bloody, however unpalatable, however challenging that might be. That was something I very much admired as a, uh, as a younger man. And then I realized that, on the one hand, Robespierre was just killing random people, because he decided that that had to be done to make a point, and I was never comfortable with that sort of utilitarianism, and it turned me off from that kind of thinking. And I also realized that Cato lost. Uh, so it's very nice um, to to have your principles. You know, you could have your principles about religion, say, you know, the service of God, and, and give yourself up as a martyr, which is great. But a political ideology is not something worth being a martyr for, in my opinion. There are certain other things, possibly freedom, whatever it may be, but being a strict ideologue to the point where you're willing to lose your whole cause just to not swerve from your political principles uh, seems to, to me to be an elevation of the political to what should properly be the religious. And the truth is, for the Romans, that was the case. The political was the yeah. So for Cato, I get it. But in terms of that being an exemplar for myself, that um, that gradually lost appeal too. Um, I had other, I had another figure I admired, 
uh, after that for similar reasons, except that his political ideals more closely aligned to my religious ideals, and I will not say his name because I'm going to get in big trouble if I do. (laughs) Okay. But uh, suffice it to say, one of the uh, commanders of one of the Jewish undergrounds um, who rebelled against the British in the 1940s to throw them out of mandatory Palestine. Uh, This was someone who did not mind civilian deaths very much. And it wasn't Menachem Begin. So anyone who knows about the subject uh, can know already who I'm talking about. But at least that inflexibility uh, had more to do with my political sensibilities at the time and my religious sensibilities at the time. But I moved on from that too for similar reasons. In part because my religious conceptions of, of that changed and in part because my political conceptions changed. Now we come to where I am now and I'm still think trying to think because I, I back then I used to think a lot about who I identify with and now I think a lot less about who I identify with because um, I recognize more that every time was a very different circumstance and it's very different to translate people from their point in time to our point in time. Uh, let me just think for a moment because I had I did have a name recently that I was thinking of that was like an unusual name that I was thinking like, hey, I I, I really feel this guy. Oh, um, I can't remember who that was, so I'll have to think of someone else. All right, you know what? Ask me another question, and if I think of someone, I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll tell you. <clears throat> okay. Okay. Um. What's your favorite, going all the way back to the beginning, and and this is sort of just to buy time, but what's your favorite vibe? Like we were talking about these zeitgeists, right? These these spirits of the times and these like ways of looking at the world. Is is there any of them that you feel stand out to you as being particularly laudatory, or if you could be alive, not necessarily for you know, the technology or the quality of life, but just the experience of being among people who are living in this way and with this kind of outlook of uh, toward the world and of, of how to live. Like, have any gripped you particularly? There are a lot. Uh, generally, what you, what you want is you want to be in a, at least in terms of what's exciting, not talking about the uh, technological, um, you know, point like, oh, you die of malaria after two days. But you want to be uh, somewhere which is young and vigorous and building itself up. So honestly, the one that, that speaks most to me would be the, uh, you know, Washington's presidency. Yeah. Young nation, new nation, big, strong focus on, on civic virtue, which is uh, something that I, as you've heard, I I, I appreciate very much. You know, I'm not going to say early Roman Republic because that was a lot harsher of a uh, of a culture. It was pretty brutal. Like I said, the story that the stories that they say tell you what their values were. That was a little too harsh for me. But the early American Republic, I I, I think, is probably the one that I would most uh, want to connect to. Now, in terms of 
characters? I cannot think of a character right now. I will tell you this. The type of person I identify the most with is someone who means well and has political ideas and is just, a, I'd say, a tragic hero type of guy who cannot carry through with his ideas because he lacks the ruthlessness to execute them. Practically speaking, that would be me. Uh, so that's not necessarily what I'd want to emulate as much as it is what I see myself being. In terms of what I admire, it would be someone like Washington. It would be someone like Washington. He was not a genius. He was certainly not a military genius. But uh, his constancy and his strength of character and his genuine moderation allowed him to, um, you know, allowed him to become what he became and allowed him to take his place in the nation. If I had to think of, uh, I just thought of a character who I would sympathize with very strongly. Maximilian of Mexico. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Thoroughly decent guy, but just, um, what can I say? Look, I'm not, I'm not the type of person who's going to be a killer. Just some people are certainly could think of a lot of people I deal with on Twitter who would be, but, uh, that's not everyone's calling. Yeah, I can I can imagine a lot of people on Twitter who would like to think that they would be, but it feels like a pretty rarefied, rarefied kind of persona these days. And it's not the type of persona you want to hang around much when there's no killing going on. Yeah, yeah. Cool, okay. Hey, we are over two hours, which I feel is a pretty good stopping point, and I feel like that was a pretty All good right. question. Um this is everyone. This is at history courses. Um, he in fact has history courses at historycourses.com. This is somebody who you want to be learning about history from. Thanks. Thanks once again for your time. It's, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Same. Good night. Yeah. Take care. <laughs>